0: Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We're in a series in the book of 1 Corinthians called A Better Way. We're learning that the letter Paul wrote the church in Corinth shows us a better way to be God's people in this world. Thanks for joining us. William Beebe, the naturalist, used to tell this story about Teddy Roosevelt. At Sagamore Hill, after an evening of talk, the two would go out on the lawn and search the skies for a certain spot of star-like light near the lower left-hand corner of the great great square of Pegasus. Then Roosevelt would recite this. That is the spiral galaxy in Andromeda. It is as large as our Milky Way. It is one of a hundred million galaxies. It consists of 100 billion suns, each larger than our sun. Then Roosevelt would grin and say, Now I think we're small enough. Let's go to bed. Now I think we're small enough, let's go to bed. And Teddy Roosevelt understood that there's times that we think of ourselves as bigger than we are and we need to get small again. And I thought about that I was studying this passage this week, and I want to invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. If you're getting used to your New Testament, uh, the Bible, I mean, in the back there, back fifth of the Bible is 1 Corinthians, and uh, if you didn't bring a Bible, I hope we have someone nearby there in the seat rack, page 925 in the Black Bible, if you want to turn to it. We're going to look at verses 1 through 13 today, and uh, just as a reminder, we're in this series called A Better Way. We're studying 1 Corinthians most of this year. And why are we calling it a better way? Well, at the end of chapter 12, Paul uses this phrase. Now I will show you a most excellent way. Now I will show you a better way. And so the series sentence for us is that Paul is showing us how to be God's people in this world. He's showing us a better way how to be God's people in this world. And I don't know if you know, this is a tricky thing. How do we live in this world but not be exactly like the world? How do we live in this world as God's people that have been graced by him and called by him uh, to love this world with him? And so how do we do that? So um, if you're following along, here's what I want you to see at the beginning, just as a way of setting this up, is that Paul urges these Christians not to boast or be puffed up. Paul urges these Christians not to boast or be puffed up. I get that word from chapter, I mean, verse 6 in chapter 4. He uses this phrase in the New International Version, puffed up. Now, we still use that phrase. And whenever I think of puffed up, um, I picture like taking a bike uh, pump there, you know, and pfft, 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 like that, and just getting bigger. The idea is, if you're following along there, that puffed up uh, is used, uh, this exact word in the Greek uh, that Paul uses, he uses it six times, but it means to be proud, arrogant, or self-important. It means to take pride in the wrong things. It's an overinflated view of ourselves. It's thinking of ourselves as bigger than we are. So out to the right, you'll notice that I list First Corinthians four six, verse eighteen, verse nineteen in the same chapter. In chapter five, verse two. In chapter eight, verse one. And if you want to add out to the right, thirteen, verse four. It's the love chapter. He says, love is not proud. It does not boast. And it's the same word that's being used here for puffed up. So. Paul only uses this word for puffed up six times in this letter. He uses it once in Colossians and never again. Do you think the Corinthians needed to know something about being puffed up? So here's what's interesting about this. When you think about being puffed up... um, I, I'll just give you an example. I think I've told this story many times. When I was out in Iowa in fact, I pulled out this little scrap of paper this week. When I was out in Iowa, um, uh, I was, uh, my office was at one end of the building, and our secretary's office was at the other end of the building, and we had the uh, pigeonhole mailboxes outside her office, so my mail was always waiting for me there. And one day I was dropping something off at the church building, and I went to just grab my mail out of my pigeonhole, and out came this scrap of paper. And on this scrap of paper was just written and handwritten in pencil, Jeff, your head is as big as a bushel bucket. And I was trying to picture that. And the first thought, the first thought I had, the first thought I had was, it's bushel basket. <laughs> Clearly missing the point. But I remember thinking, Lord, Lord, is that true? I, That means I can't even walk through a doorway if my head's that big. And so, God, what what do you want me to know? And so it's, it's so tricky. Pride is so tricky. And so here's what I want you to notice about this passage. By the way, before we go to that, 1 Corinthians 8.1. I actually shared this one of the first weeks because what the Corinthians are struggling with, they live in a world that really prizes knowledge like ours does. Hey, are you smart? How smart? How powerful? How strong? How rich are you? All the same things. But knowledge was the way that they navigated and showed how important and impressive they were. So here's what Paul's going to say later in the a letter, because this subject is one that he has to keep coming back to. Let's read it. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. In other words, you watch your life. Watch how your life goes. If you start becoming puffed up, it's because you're putting the emphasis in the wrong place. So I want to keep bringing you back, bringing you back. And so if you're following along with loving reminders, he points them back to humble. With loving reminders, he points them back to humble. Um, i, I Down the hallway, we have a grandfather clock, I think, in one of the corners, and uh, we don't have it running anymore, but when a a grandfather clock's running, have you ever paid attention to the arm of the pendulum that swings back and forth? I I think that describes, again, this battle we have with pride, at least mine. I I never feel like I'm right there all the time at being humble. I always feel like I'm swinging through it and having to come back to it. And so when you think about why this message is so important, I think the reason why this is so important is for two reasons. One is that when I'm proud, when you're proud, we're the last ones to realize it. Pride has a way of us being blind to it. But second of all, the reason why this message is valuable for us today, these reminders are valuable, is because until heaven, we're never going to stop fighting the struggle with pride. And so I don't know about you, but I need these reminders. This message has been very helpful for me as I've studied these verses this week. But let me just read to you some examples of what I mean. James Needham described this experience that he once had. As I sat with my family at a local breakfast establishment, I noticed a finely dressed man at an adjacent table. His Armani suit and stiffly pressed shirt coordinated perfectly with a power tie. His wingtip shoes sparkled from a recent shine. Every hair was in place, including his perfectly groomed mustache. The man sat alone eating a bagel as he prepared for a meeting, and as he reviewed the papers before him, he appeared nervous, glancing frequently at his Rolex watch. It was obvious he had an important meeting ahead. The man stood up, and I watched as he straightened his tie and prepared to leave. Immediately, I noticed a blob of cream cheese attached to his finely groomed mustache. He was about to go into the world dressed in his finest with cream cheese on his face. I thought of a business meeting he was about to attend. Who would tell him? Should I? What if no one did? And the thing about pride is it's like cream cheese on our face. Unless... The Lord shows us, or someone else helps us see it. We're going to probably be the last one to notice right away. That's why, again, Paul David Tripp observes this my self perception is as accurate as a carnival mirror. Have you guys ever seen those? They kind of bend, you look really like crazy and stuff like that. And he's saying that's about how accurate our self perception is, it's flawed. Why? Because our overinflated view of ourselves, often we want to always, don't tell me anything about me that's not good or that makes me feel great about my image. And so that's the challenge we face. And that's why I love what John Stott says. He says, at every stage of our Christian development and every sphere of our Christian discipleship, pride is the greatest enemy and humility, our greatest friend. So I want to talk to you about Humility today, when we're puffed up. And this message is entitled Fools for Christ. We're going to see that in verse 10. That's where the message title comes from. But uh, let me just ask you to look at the the outline there. We're going to look at three reminders that point us back to humble first. The first reminder is found in verses one through five. Then we're going to look at uh, verses six and seven for the second reminder. The third reminder is in verses eight through 13. After that, we're going to talk about how we can apply this in our own lives personally. So would you pray with me before we look at this together? Now, Lord, please be our teacher. There's something different, the quality of when you speak directly to us than any human being can. But I pray you'll use your word to be a mirror, hold it up to us so we can see reality and help us to move in the direction you always meant for us as Christians. In your name we pray, amen. Okay, are you ready? I'm going to read verses one through four, and then if you could be ready to read verse five in that first gray box, we'll look at the very first reminder that can point us back to humble. Here we go. This then is how you ought to regard us as servants of Christ, as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Some of your translations say as stewards of the mysteries God has revealed. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. Let me just stop and say a couple things here. The background, if you haven't been studying this, is that Paul notices, and he's been talking about it for these first four chapters, is that after he helped plant this church, the people, instead of uh, continuing to grow and become like Jesus, they still were using the world's way of measuring to think of themselves. So they started getting really pumped up about all their Bible knowledge and they started comparing and criticizing different teachers. And they would just weigh out different uh, things. And then they not only criticized the teachers, but they would criticize each other for not criticizing the teachers the way they criticized the teachers. And what it was doing was just creating this competitive spirit, this comparing spirit that was not loving. It did not feel warm or close at all. And so now, Paul's saying, this is how you ought to regard us as teachers, is we're servants and stewards. He already said in chapter 3, think of us as farmers that plant and water. We don't give the growth, God does. Last week, we saw that, think of us as builders, but we only build on the foundation that God has already given in Jesus Christ. There's no credit we can take for being such good builders. He teaches us how to build up instead of tear down. This week he says, think of us as stewards and servants and stewards. Now, a few weeks ago, Steve taught us that the word servant in chapter 3, which is a different word than servant here, means table waiters people that were willing to wait on others. The word here means under rowers. In Roman ships, if you've ever seen a movie like Ben Hur or something like that, you know that in the Roman ships, they would take their slaves and they would put them in the galley of the ships so that they would row these huge lines of of, uh, oars. And the under rowers were in the bottom galley and they had the hardest work, the most menial, and no one cared about them. When they died, they just got another one, put them in there. And Paul is saying, think of us as under rowers. We're here to serve. We're, we're, not, we do not, we're not here to be exalted. We're here to serve. And also think of us as stewards that have a responsibility. We've been given a trust, and faithfulness is going to be the most important thing. Now, here's why this is important about how we think about different leaders. If we're not careful, we can begin to say, well, I like that teacher more than this teacher. And all of a sudden, you just go, oh, my goodness. Now, it's not wrong to have that thought go through your mind. But what we do with that really matters. A few years ago, uh, back when we were in our old building, Dad and I had the most uncomfortable experience. A guy came up to us after a service, and we're both standing there, and he looked at my dad and said, what's it like to have a son who's a better preacher than you? My dad looked at me and said, it makes me grateful. I'll never forget your answer, Dad. But here's the thing I wanted to say. That could be debated. (laughs) But also, you're way off track. This was never the purpose. That's not why God gave us teachers. And notice at the end of chapter three, he says, all are yours in Christ. You don't have to pick. Christ has provided all these. Your job is to be teachable, humble, and learn from them and build them up. And so just an important thing. He comes back to that, servants and stewards. Now he goes on in verse three. Look at what he says. He says, I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. He's not saying, I don't care what people think of me. I don't care what you think. He's not being crass like that. He's simply saying, in the long run, I cannot be preoccupied what you think of me or even what I think of myself. Those assessments are not the most important. Verse four, my conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Now would you read verse five with me in that first gray box? Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. Now, here's the first reminder if you're following along. One day, the Lord will judge my stewardship. One day, the Lord will judge my stewardship. He's saying, look, uh, we've been given a trust, but also you've been given a trust. And so just know there's coming a day when you're gonna stand before Christ and give an account for your stewardship. Remember the first week, we talked about the fact that we have been called. And with that calling, what one day is going to happen is we're going to stand before Christ and He'd say, were you faithful to the calling I gave you here on planet earth? And if we go, you know, well, I, I was when I felt like it. What kind of message does that communicate to the one who gave His life for us? Now some people, as Brian corrected, this is not about salvation. The judgment seat of Christ is different. The judgment seat of Christ is about rewards. The judgment seat of Christ is about the honor we show Christ, and it's for Christians. We have a family right now that's traveling uh, in Europe, and they just have been in Corinth. I saw yesterday Jim and Christy Davis posted a picture of the Bema seat in Corinth. Paul uses that same word uh, when he talks about this in 2 Corinthians 5. He's already referred to it in chapter 3 of uh, 1 Corinthians, chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians, and in 2 Corinthians 5.10, look at what he says here. He says, for we must all stand before Christ. Many of your translations say before the judgment seat of Christ, the bema seat of Christ. We will each receive whatever we deserve for the good or evil we have done in this earthly body. Again, this isn't about losing our salvation. This is about what did you do with what I gave you? And so we've been given a trust, and we must prove faithful. In other words, our hearts, not perfectly faithful, but faithful day in, day out of saying, this is my aim. This is my aim to love and serve you as you've loved and served me. And that kind of relationship is the richest. And he's just saying, let that always humble you. Friends, when I think of this, it makes my knees knock especially with those of us that have an extra responsibility of teaching or shepherding, according to James 3. But look, if you're following along, when the Lord comes, he'll reveal everyone's true motives. When the Lord comes, he'll reveal everyone's true motives. He's coming again, friends. Now, let me just go back for a second because when we get into this whole thing of judging, um, many people say, yeah, judge not. And they say that all the time in the culture. You can't judge me, don't judge me. But I just want to make sure we balance that a little bit. And look at John 7, 24. Here's what Jesus said one day. Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. So how do you hold that intention when he says, judge not that you be not judged with the measure you use will be the measure will be used against you? What is he saying is, don't play God. Don't say you have the ultimate verdict on somebody's life, but that doesn't mean you don't judge and evaluate things in life. And notice that in chapter five, when we get there, he's going to actually say to the church, You need to judge this situation where a man is living with his father's wife. That incest has to be dealt with in the church. Should we not judge those inside, he said? And then in chapter 6, he says, you guys are going nuts. You're bringing lawsuits in front of pagan lawyers and judges instead of judging this inside the church like you could. Don't you realize that one day we'll judge the angels? So there is a sense that we need to hold each other accountable and challenge each other, but never in the ultimate verdict way. We're not God, and we need to be humble about that. But just, again, keeping that in mind. So let me just say this, this third thing. What counts is his praise... At that time, no one else's. What counts is his praise. At that time, no one else's. That's why he says, wait. Wait till the Lord comes. You're drawing all kinds of conclusions about me and Apollos and Peter and about each other and all that stuff. Come on, go slow. Walk humbly. Know that there's a day coming that's going to really be challenging for us all when we think about standing before Jesus. Romans 2.16 says, On that day he will judge every person's secrets of their heart oh man, there are things in my life that I know that I want this to make me more humble about serving Christ. When I'm unfaithful in any way, I want to be faithful. I want to move in the direction of faithful. And when I think about that, that humbles me. It brings me back to size. Look at what Romans twelve three says. He says this in another letter. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. Just, just be, don't, don't overrate yourself. Some of you think, by the way, that humility is thinking less of yourself, that it's thinking of yourself as a doormat. It's not true. C.S. Lewis says, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. And the idea is, is that why? You're more preoccupied with Jesus. You're more preoccupied with other people rather than just yourself all the time. It's not trying to always say, I'm a worm, I'm worthless. No. In fact, Uh, Fred Smith once said humility is not denying the power that you have, that would be lying God's given all of us a certain amount of power humility is not denying the power you have it's it's acknowledging that the power comes through us not from us and so just realizing again to have an accurate view of ourselves especially in light of judgment day, the judgment day of Christ okay, that's the first reminder now let's look at the second reminder and it's found in verses 6 and 7 I'll read verse six. Would you be ready to read verse seven in that second gray box, please? Now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things myself, to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. Now, before I go to verse seven, I just want to say one thing here. Paul is about to challenge their socks off. He's going to ask three rapid-fire questions that we're about to read in just a second. And after that, he's going to uh, be sarcastic with them in order to bring them back to their senses. And that, some people say, well, that doesn't feel very loving. Love does not mean we don't challenge. Love means sometimes we challenge, sometimes we invite, but, but always wanting the best for the other person. So notice the language uses is very affectionate. Brothers and sisters. He doesn't say, I'm above you. He says, brothers and sisters. And then he says, I have pra- we have applied this to ourselves for your benefit. We want you to win. And we don't ask you to do something we're not willing to apply to ourselves first. But we're trying to show you that when you find your struggle with puffed up going on, here are the things to remember. Don't go beyond what is written. Keep God's word in your mind and let that keep bringing you back to center. And so now let's read verse 7 in 1 Corinthians 4. For who makes you different than anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Now these three questions back to back. In other words, he's he's saying to himself, like, where where did you become where did you appoint yourself important enough to decide everybody else's importance? What where did you get your superiority? Have you forgotten the grace of God, what He's done for you? And it starts with that question. But then there's this next one, about 20 years ago when I read this, it daggered me in the heart. And it's, what do you have? that you did not receive. And so if you're following along, here's the second reminder. There's nothing I have that I did not receive. There's nothing I have that I did not receive. Interestingly, right here in verse seven, he goes from uh, the second person, you, plural, to second person, singular. Now he's saying to every one of you, what do you have? What do you have that you did not receive? What do you have? He's gonna go back in verse eight and say you, plural, but here he's going, think about it. Apply it personally. What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you go around boasting as though you didn't receive it? Super challenging. Uh, I thought about this a number of times. I I had a lady, uh, again, when I was a pastor years ago that used to come up to me and she'd say, Jeff, don't forget where your power comes from. And she'd say that often, or she'd say, remember where your power comes from. She was always reminding me that my power was on loan, that it was allowed to come through me, but it never came from me. And here's where the challenge is, friends. If you listen to our culture, whether it's the NCAA tournament or you talk to people that are interviewed because they're highly successful in our culture, and you ask them, what is the secret of your success? Most people will say something in this neighborhood. I worked hard. It's so common that we never even flinch. But do you realize, I'm not denying that people worked hard. What I'm checking is, is it because you worked hard that you succeeded? Because I can go to third world countries where people work harder than any of us have ever worked one day in our life and they don't have the same thing to show for it. So where do we get off saying that And so John MacArthur puts this really well. He says this, we did not give ourselves life, the food and care and protection we had as babies, an education, talents, the country we were born in, the opportunity to earn a living, the IQ we have, or anything else. No matter how hard we may have studied in school or worked at our business or profession, we would have nothing except what the Lord and many others by his providential hand have given us. If we have a good pastor... God gave them to us. If we have good parents, God gave them to us. If we live in a good country, God gave it to us. If we have a good mind or creative talent, God gave it to us. Everything we have is on loan from the Lord entrusted to us for a while to use in serving him. And the spirit of entitlement can come across any of us, Brian's going to talk about that more in several weeks. But this idea is, is I have what I have because I deserved it. I earned it. I made it happen. If you're following along in the notes, notice that if all I have is a gift, I can't boast that I made it happen. If all I have is a gift from God, I can't boast that I made it happen. And so this reminder, when, we, when I was a parent, when Trisha and I were parents and our kids were little, we would pray before meals. I don't know if you have grace or you pray a prayer of thanks before meals, but my parents and Trisha's parents had modeled that for us and we decided to carry it on. So again, you can do that, you know, really rote. You can actually do that without even using your brain sometimes if you've done it a number of years in your life. So one night I just said to our kids after we got done, why do we do that? And I think one of our kids said, because we're supposed to. And I said, well, let's go a little deeper than that. So where did we get this food that we're about to eat? And one of the kids says, mom bought it at the grocery store. I said, bingo. Where did mom get the money to buy at the grocery store? Well, you and mom, you know, work at Cherry Hills in the preschool and at the church, and the church family pays us. I said, okay, where did they get it? Well, they got it from their bosses. I said, where did their bosses get it? They said, tell us. (laughs) And so I just said, look, if you trace it all the way back, You trace it all the way back to God's hand. And we forget that. And when I remember this came from God's hand, and I no more deserve this than anyone else, it gives you a spirit of gratitude rather than pride. It helps you to live closer to ground level rather than being inflated and saying, aren't I something that I have all this food anytime I want? Oh, man. Paul says, let me just remind you, what do you have that you did not receive? Remember, there's nothing you and I deserve because of our sinful lives, but God still lets the rain fall on the just and the unjust and makes his sun rise on the evil and the good. David stood up and he said, the offering we're about to give you, we're only giving back what came from your hand. James 1.17, every good and perfect gift comes from above. Praise you, God, for your kindness to us. Third reminder is found in verses 8 through 13. Let me read them to you. It says this. Now, this is where he's going to get sarcastic. Already, you have all you want. Already, you have become rich. You have begun to reign, and that without us. How I wish you really had begun to reign, so that we also might reign with you. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like those condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels, as well as to human beings. Here's the title. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honored. We are dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. That may not make sense to us, but the Corinthians thought manual labor was like too low for them. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. Now, he's gonna say in verse 14, I'm not saying this to shame you. I'm saying this to warn you. So my heart is not to make you feel stupid. My heart is, watch out, because now you're on a trail. You're on a path that's just like the world. And you're going to measure the wrong way, plus you're going to give your life to the wrong energy, the wrong things. So if you're following along, here's the third reminder. Being faithful to Christ means being a fool for Christ. Being faithful to Christ. Remember, that, that's what it's required for those who have been given a trust. Being faithful to Christ means being f- a fool for Christ. I remember when I was in high school, I first read this verse. And I remember thinking, I don't want to be a fool. Uh, That's not going to help me be popular. And I suddenly realized Paul was going, what do you want? You want popularity or Jesus and faithfulness? You're going to have to choose. Because this is where humility feels a lot like dying. And if you're following along, the idea of serving Christ... Means dying to earthly glory, honor, and recognition. Serving Christ means dying to earthly glory, honor, and recognition. It doesn't mean that it won't come our way. It doesn't mean we can't appreciate it when it comes. But if we live for that, it'll control our lives and it'll make us unfaithful to Jesus every time. And so the idea here is our motives, getting back to our motives. What do you really want? You realize, don't you, friends, that if I wanted to, I could be a pastor and I could put my whole motive being to impress you rather than serve Jesus. And I've done that sometimes. And whether you notice it or not, one day that's going to be exposed. But how if I live in that light now and say, Oh God, help me? You, t- you came to serve. Now you've teach- you're teaching me to serve instead of exalt myself or have this inflated image and view. Come on. He's, Paul's saying, come on. And then he goes, he uses this powerful image. He says, look, if you want to really understand what it means to follow Jesus, notice that us apostles, the reason you don't, aren't impressed by us is because we're not impressing the way the world impresses. We're taking the low place. We're living in places and doing things that other people don't want to do, but Jesus has helped us get there. And so, listen to what William Barclay says. He says he compares their pride, their self satisfaction, their feeling of superiority with the life that an apostle lives. And he uses a vivid picture. When a Roman general won a great victory, he was allowed to parade his victorious army through the streets of the city with all the trophies that he had won. The procession was called a triumph. But at the end, there came a little group of captives who were doomed to death. They were being taken to the arena to fight with the beast and so to die. The Corinthians in their blatant pride were like the conquering general displaying the trophies of his prowess. The apostles were like the little group of captives, humiliated and doomed to die. To the Corinthians, the Christian life meant flaunting their privileges and reckoning up their achievement. To Paul, it meant humble service and readiness to die for Christ. So, Steve helped us remember in chapter one, the wisdom of God is foolishness in the world's eyes. Why would I want to die to myself and live for Christ? That sounds awful, unless you realize that it's the greatest opportunity in the world. And so, this week, I was reading through the New Testament. You know, we've been invited to do that as a church family, and so I was in Luke, and I was in Luke 14, And I've read these verses before, but they were just such a powerful reminder to me. Jesus says to the crowd, If you want to be my disciple, you must hate everyone else by comparison. He's not saying hate people, but by comparison, loving me that much more. Your father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. And if you do not carry your own cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. So no one can become my disciple unless he first sits down, counts his blessings, and then renounces them all for me. What is he getting at? Pride is what started the fall where people decided to live independently and do their own thing. Humility is getting back to the place where you go, God, I'm surrendered and I'm available Work in me, work through me, do whatever you want. Show me how to live this life differently instead of thinking it's all about success and comfort and getting my own way when I want my own way instead of your way. And so Paul's just going, you guys, you're Christians, but you're going the wrong way. That's not how the Spirit will lead you. That's not what Jesus intended. And so the idea was, is that they thought, you know, look at all that we've accomplished. Here's what one person says. All Christians are at one and the same time, both kings and queens and paupers. It is the authentic Christian experience to be wealthy in Christ and yet despised by the world. We never reach our perfect bliss here. We shall never have perfect health. We shall, not here, we shall not have instant guidance. We shall not be in constant beautiful contact with the Lord. We are still human. We are still in the world. We are still mortal. We are still exposed to sin and pride. The world, the flesh, and the devil. We must all wrestle and watch and pray. We shall still fall and fail at times. There is victory and there is power. There is healing. There is guidance. There is salvation. But we have not yet arrived we live in two worlds and there must therefore be a tension of how we live and that's what keeps us humble. And so he says this at the end, do you notice that if you're following along in the notes? Jesus calls me to bless when cursed and love when mistreated. He calls me to bless when cursed and love when mistreated. He says, look, if you're surrendered to the Lord, then when, instead of when people try and knock you down, insult you, make you smaller, you respond differently than you used to. Because now Jesus and you will not let you do the same thing without challenging you. And so here's what 1 Peter 3, 9 says. I love these words. They've really helped me a lot. Don't repay evil for evil. Don't retaliate with insults when people insult you. Instead, pay them back with a blessing. That is what God has called you to do, and he will grant you his blessing. So a totally different spirit. Aristotle said to the Greeks that if you are ever insulted, the way you respond is to insult back. Jesus taught differently, and he lived differently, and that's the people he wants us to make. It's a better way. So how do we bring this home? How do we look at this? I was thinking about a story I read years ago that brought this into perspective for me. A lady um, was being followed one day uh, by a journalist, and um, she had, she had a different lifestyle, and he noticed it. Here's what happened. The story is told of a young Christian nurse that began working with lepers in India, bathing their wounds, and bringing them food and water. Every day, after her job of working in the hospital, she would go to the leper colony as a volunteer. An American journalist discovered her work and watched her work with the lepers for several days. Later, he spoke with her about it. And here's what he said. I wouldn't do what you're doing for a million dollars. And she looked back at him quietly and said, neither would I. The implication was, but for Jesus, I'll do it. And friends, that is the good news that God wants to present to the world as people that instead of inflated, having to have a big image, puffed up, we can walk humbly With God now and learn that and keep coming back to it because we don't always get it right. So, if you're looking at the last section here, God gives grace to the humble. Now, I get that from 1 Peter 5 5 and 6. The Bible says, God opposes the proud. Christian or non Christian person alike, by the way. He hates pride wherever he sees it. Aren't you glad he does? Isn't pride ugly in any of us? God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore under the mighty hand of God, that in due time he may lift you up. Now notice what it says, is that God gives grace to the humble. He's more than willing to work in our lives. But he will not humble ourselves for us. We have to humble ourselves. In other words, we may go through humiliating things. We may go through things that humble us and make us feel small. That doesn't necessarily mean we're humble of heart. We still have to choose to humble ourselves. So again, as I think about this, here's the question. Here's the life-changing question that can help all of us. God, it's actually a prayer. God, show me any pride in me so your grace can flow. God, show me any pride in me so your grace can flow. D.L. Moody, the great evangelist, one day said, right now I'm having so much trouble with D.L. Moody that I don't have time to find fault with the other guy. What was he saying is, if I just pay attention the Lord, change me. Every time you see pride in me, God, address it. And what is is humility? It means to be teachable, correctable, leadable. And so when you and I come to that posture, it's so helpful, but it's something we have to choose. So I'll just give a couple examples. One is that this week, as I was studying this, I noticed that there were several times when I, I really liked Trish. My wife. I, I really like her. I'm really thankful to be married to her. But I notice that there's times when I'll either talk to her impatiently, you know, kind of, kind of, you know, I'm, hey, come on. Or I, I will be defensive as she points something out rather than going, yeah, I think there's some truth to what you're saying. I need to take that to heart. So like, several times I just sense the Lord saying, Jeff, keep short accounts. When you become aware of that, Humble yourself by just going back and saying, oh, what you said, I, I didn't respond real well at first, but it was important you said that. Thanks, I had cream cheese in my face and I didn't know it, see? But then there's other times, friends, like if the Lord says to you, could I do anything I want with that money I gave you? Could I, could I ask you to serve that person? Would you do it? Would you be willing to bless that person that just cursed you or mistreated you? And answer kindly instead of the way you want to. You see what I'm saying? Teachable, beatable. Now, I, here's the imagination part. The Corinthian church, when they got this letter, imagine what they did. Because we don't know what they did. We know that a 2nd Corinthians letter had to be written, so maybe they didn't get it all <laughs> first time. And we probably need a 2nd Corinthians and 3rd Corinthians, right? But that here's here's what imagine if they had taken it to heart. Oh man, how did I get so off track? Lord. I remember that there's coming a day when I'm going to give an account, not just Paul or Apollos or that Christian or that Christian. Let me pay attention to my part with you. Oh, Lord, thank you for everything I have. I started thinking that I made it happen. Oh, Lord, help me be a servant instead of a success story. Please, Lord. So as we sing this final song, We get a chance to be humble by looking to Christ. And as we're singing this song, let's praise him. Let's bless him, but also let him speak to us across the tick of our minds, any area he may want to point out. And let's keep short accounts. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. If you would like more information or to stay connected to Cherry Hills Church, please visit our website at cherryhillsfamily.org or follow us on Facebook.